Good morning, everyone. Happy Monday morning to you as we are continuing our Facebook Live and podcast devotions, working through the F260 Bible reading plan together. Um, if you don't have that plan, you can access it uh, just by accessing the Google machine and typing in F260 Bible reading plan, um, or you can find it on our website as well. Um, so we are continuing to work through a larger portion of the Old Testament, and today we're actually going to encounter some of the uh, more significant and informative uh, markers in Israel's history um, that we'll look at today. But before we get into that, what I want to do is kind of give just a, a brief summary of what we've been reading the last week, and then we'll dive in and look at our um, three questions that I kind of do in my devotions that I'm encouraging us to do, um, which is to simply do three things with the text. To look up, what does this text teach us about God? Look in, what does this teach us about ourselves? And look out, what does this teach us about the way uh, that we live? So um, we're going to hop into that. And if you have been reading along with us, uh, we are back in Second Kings today after taking, I think, what is maybe uh, at least a week, if not a two-week break from it. And uh, we were in uh, a bunch of prophets. We were in Jonah. We were in Isaiah. We were in Hosea. We were in Micah um, and uh, Amos. And when those prophets were prophesying, um, what we read is a lot of those prophets were prophesying during uh, the days of such and such kings of Israel or such and such kings of Judah. And those are important markers because um, it's reminding us that what's going on in those prophets, these calling out of God's prophets to God's people is happening in the midst of that divided kingdom. So you remember after the fall of David, um, the kingdom was torn in two. Um, Jeroboam took 10 tribes and went to the north, and that's the kingdom of Israel. And um, David's line kept Judah in two tribes, which are in the south, and their head is in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is kind of identified with um, Judah. Samaria up in the north is identified with Israel. And so those are key words that help us understand what's going on. And during this divided kingdom, the prophets are calling out because both Israel and Judah um, are wrought with sin. And the, much of what the prophets are doing, and we see this um, as we've read it, is the prophets, when we think of prophets, we generally think of them kind of like these crystal ball people telling us, you know, hey, if you uh, go to the store, you'll see a woman in a green hat and she'll give you the best apples you've ever had or something like that. But um, really what the prophets are doing is they're just forth telling what God has already said. Remember when we were in Deuteronomy, God warns them, hey, when you're in the land, if you don't obey me, you're going to be judged. If you don't obey me, you're going to be punished. If you run outside the boundary markers of the law, there's danger out there. And so much of what the prophets are doing isn't creating some alternate new reality with what they're saying, kind of like a magical prophet. Instead, what they're doing is they're just saying, God has already said this to you. And if you fail to do it, God's going to be true to judge you. They're foretelling what's coming. Now, there are parts, and we saw that in Isaiah 53 when we looked there. Um, we saw a little bit in Micah, looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, where they are um, foretelling these wonderful divine events that God is going to bring into existence. But for the most part, the prophets are just reminding God's people of what God has already said. Because the truth is, we as Christians rarely need new information. We just need old information hammered into our hard hearts. And so that's what the prophets were doing. Um, and they were saying obey or you're going to be judged. We see all these threats of judgment coming towards God's people. And then today, when we get into 2 Kings, we're going to see that God does not make idle threats. That finally God's people, um, specifically the northern kingdom of Israel, are going to be judged. And so I'm going to give us a summary. We are in 2 Kings uh, 17 and 18 today. 
And uh, again, I'm not going to read it for you. If you've read it, great. If not, um, there's kind of this summary. And so we're looking at two kings. In the north, there is Hosea, uh, who's the king of Israel. And in the south, we're going to see um, King Hezekiah, who is the king of Judah. And chapter 17 kind of looks at this uh, significant event from the time, from the perspective of Israel. And chapter 18 looks at the perspective of this event um, from the perspective of Judah. And so Hosea comes about and um, he kind of makes some side deals. Uh, Assyria is threatening them. And instead of continuing to pay off Assyria, they begin to pay off Egypt and Assyria gets wind of it. And what happens is Assyria comes and they wage a three-year war against the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel falls. They are taken into captivity. And we see in uh, verses 24 and following that what Assyria does is they send some of their people to the land of Israel and then they take a bunch of Israelites and they bring them to the land of Assyria. And so there's this really big intermingling of cultures and of people that are going on here. And this is, why is this happening? Well, we read this in verse seven, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and feared other gods, yet walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. So why is this happening? This is happening because God told them if they would not repent, judgment would come. And so this actually, chapter 17, is a huge event in the scope of Israel's timeline. Um, this is uh, 722, the year 722 BC, and this is the fall of the kingdom of Israel. From this point on, we don't read about the kingdom of Israel in the narrative of uh, the Old Testament. And so this is significant, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And so what we see is in chapter 17, there's a, a big explanation of why these events are happening. And then we see a little bit of what Assyria is going through. And there's this unique thing that happens when Assyria sends their people to live in the land of Israel, the land itself revolts, right? Uh, it says that, um, uh, therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. And so the lions are killing the people in Assyria. And so the people of Assyria go to their king and say, we don't know the customs of this land. We don't know what it mean, what it looks like to appease this God. And so we need help because the lions are killing us. And so uh, they ultimately send one of the priests they took away from Israel. They sent the priest back and he's going to teach these people how to fear the Lord so they don't get all eaten by lions. Um, and then uh, we, we see that even though this priest comes back and we'll talk about this, they fear the Lord, but they don't actually worship the Lord. And that's a big problem. And now we get into chapter 18. And so now we see Hezekiah. And we read about um, Hezekiah's perspective of the fall of Israel, but then he has his own problems here. Um, he sees that Assyria has come down and conquered Israel in the north, and generally when a ball of that size gets rolling down a hill, it doesn't just stop. And he knows that. He knows that the kingdom of Judah is going to be next on Assyria's list. And so what he does um, is, is he is generally a really good king. In fact, it says in verse five, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord and did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord commanded 
but kept the commandments the Lord commanded Moses. So in contrast to the people of Israel who are not following that law, here's Hezekiah, a good king who is helping Judah follow this law. And yet we begin to see some tension here because as Assyria is threatening, Hezekiah goes into the temple and he basically strips the temple of all the valuable things that are there and gives it to Hezekiah, or gives it to the king of Assyria. Sennacherib is the king's name. And he says, hey, Sennacherib, I'm going to give you this money if you promise to not kill us. And what ultimately happens in the rest of chapter 18 is we see that Sennacherib um, sends some of his uh, royal delegation to Jerusalem, and they're going to kind of uh, measure out the terms of this agreement. And uh, what happens is uh, neither Hezekiah nor Sennacherib actually go out. They both send kind of their ambassadors, their royal ambassadors, and uh, Assyria's ambassadors get to the doors of it, of Jerusalem, and they begin to um, say to him, or at, at Lake, I can't say it, Lakish actually is where they meet, and uh, he begins to say, hey, I'm going to conquer you, because that's what we're going to do, and uh, they begin, uh, Rabshakeh, who is the ambassador from Assyria, begins to kind of taunt Israel, even though Israel, or Judah, even though Judah is willing to give up a vast amount of money, it seems that they're just going to take that money and then blow through town anyway. And so he begins to kind of taunt the God of Judah. He says, your God can't save you. What nation has not been conquered by Assyria? Why do you think your God is any different? Besides, we see that King Hezekiah has torn down a bunch of high places, which we know are bad, but they're associating those high places with the God of Judah. And they say, you don't even have places to worship him. You've got one place to worship your God, not thousands. We have thousands of places. We are Assyria. There's nothing you could do to stop us. And so there's this interesting scene where um, the royal ambassadors of Judah are kind of like, hey, Rabshakeh, can you, can you speak in a different language? Because we're close enough to the walls of the city that uh, the people of Judah can hear you, and we don't want them to hear you. And Rabshakeh knows that they don't want the people to hear his words because uh, they don't want them to be afraid. But Rabshakeh knows that, and he begins to turn to the wall and openly taunt God's people. And he offers them peace and says, if you don't, if you uh, obey your king, you're going to die. But if you cave and if you surrender to Assyria, you're going to flourish. And the chapter actually ends in this big tension um, where there's no resolution. And so as the reader, we have this tension. We have seen the fall of Israel, and now we're wondering, is Judah next? What is this faithful king Hezekiah, who's who's obviously scared because he's kind of offering this peace offering to Assyria out of the temple. Um, what's going to happen to these people uh, is God's people, as we know it, both tribes are about to be wiped out. And we're going to see the resolution of that, which I'm excited for um, in chapters 19 and 20, two of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So that's the summary of what goes in here. Big picture, Israel falls, Judah is threatened, um, and we are left waiting to see what's going to happen. So the three questions we're asking as it comes to devotions is, um, what does this passage teach us about God? How do we look up? What does it teach us about ourselves? How do we look in? What does it teach us about the way we live? Uh, how do we look out? Well, the first thing we see in this text is we see God's long-suffering nature in judgment. When it comes to looking up, um, we see God, the severity of God's judgment, right? God is causing an entire nation of people to be killed, taken away, enslaved by this nation. And we can find that, and we should find that, to be uh, ominous, to be threatening. But what we also see 
is how long-suffering God was in here. In fact, in chapter 18, those of you who are at Sovereign Hope, when we preach through the book of Deuteronomy, he's referencing almost word for word the warnings and the promises God gave the people in Deuteronomy before they entered into the promised land. And it's dates are relative. Um, we know 722 is when Israel falls here to Assyria. We think, and so in BC it counts backwards, um, and so the bigger numbers are later where it's flipped in our current time frame. And so 722 is when Israel was Israel fell to Assyria. They think roughly it was around 1400 BC that Israel crossed right after Deuteronomy in the book of Joshua, crossed over the Jordan River and went into the promised land, which means there's roughly 700 to 800 years in between the firm warnings that God gave Moses in the law and proclaimed to the people in which the people themselves agreed to keep to the time when the Northern Kingdom was finally punished. And if you think about yourself, how many minutes, maybe if you're a parent or if you're a roommate, uh, how many minutes would it take for you to get frustrated with the person who is disobeying or disrespecting you? To basically, uh, if it, you're a parent, spank them. If it's a roommate, to you know, uh, shut shut the door in their face. Or if it's a boss, to um, begin to begrudgingly treat them differently. Uh, here we see that God is slow to anger. Like God has been angered all up in these points. We are reading this, right? When we're in the judges, when we're in the kings, we see God's terrible, um, the, the terrible actions of God's people towards him, how, how quick they are to forget him, how quick they are to turn to other gods. And yet it was 800 years of God faithfully, graciously sending his judges and his kings and his prophets saying, repent, Repent, turn to me, trust in me. Um, like we saw in Hosea, it is God's grace to say, remember those men are not your husband. You think they can provide you everything you need, but I am the true husband. I am the one who loves you and cares for you. And so we see the severity of God's judgment. It is certain those who do not repent will be punished, but God is so long suffering to bring us to repentance. Paul echoes this in Romans where he says, God overlooks evil so that you might repent. And that's true for us is wherever we are in life, to have life means that God is being long-suffering with us. And that means that we should either repent of sin um, or we should be more appreciative that we have repented and Jesus has saved us. Now we get to live for his glory. And so we see how wonderfully long-suffering God is in this text. Um, and we, we see this uh, in we see the nature of his long-suffering heart in verses 9 through 14, where he's describing the way the people responded to his grace. Remember, God brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out of slavery. He brought them through the Red Sea. He brought them to the promised land. He rained down manna and quail that hopped up on their grills in the morning. He promised to displace all of their enemies. He brought them victory in battle. And yet, verse 9, the people of Israel did, secret, did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars, and so these are, these are idols and false places of worship. Pillars and ashram on every high tree and under every green tree, or under every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served the idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. 
Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every true prophet and by every seer, saying, so you hear this repetition, God is not without warning. God is not without providing grace. And they said, turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And we see how wicked this is leading down into verse 17, where it says that God's people are actually sacrificing their sons and daughters to these false gods. Man, God is so long-suffering, but there comes a point where evil needs to be judged. And here in 722, in the northern kingdom, they are judged. They are carried away into judgment by the people of Assyria, and we don't read about them anymore. And yet, the other thing we saw when we were looking through the prophets is God is bringing total cataclysmic judgment. But God also promises a remnant, right? We saw it in the seed of Jesse. We saw that in the shoot of Jesse. We saw that in specifically in Micah, which we just read on Friday. God is promising this remnant to rise. And we see this remnant in that even though Israel was sinful and Judah was sinful, Judah will endure because of God's promise to David. God leaves this remnant, this people of Judah, and uh, which leaves us to wonder at the end of this, what's going to happen to this remnant? Will the, the weakness of this remnant be redeemed? Is Hezekiah, the king who has been a good king, is he going to cave like the bad kings of Israel? It makes us long to know, will the people of Israel, will the remnant of Israel sub- survive because of the righteousness of their king? Or will the king also lead them into failure? How will God keep his promise to his people? And so in the midst of judgment, we also see God's promise to save. And that is seen ultimately when we trust in God's good king, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the hands of the evil one. And so in this text, we see God's judgment, we see God's salvation, and we see that we ought to soberly assess ourselves in that. And so that's where we now begin to look in. And here we see the danger of what I call lip service worship, right? And so Assyria comes into the land, lions start eating them. That's a good deterrent. And what's interesting is they immediately connect these lions to judgment from God. And so they go to the king of Assyria and they say, we need to learn God's, the, the God of these people. We need to learn his customs so that we stop getting eaten by lions. And so they send a priest and the priest teaches them how they should fear the Lord. We read that in verse 28 of chapter 17. But it says this then. It says, they also feared the Lord and appointed from themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to their former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow the statutes or rules of the law or the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. And so here we see a priest goes and teaches them how to fear the Lord. And in one sense, it says they feared the Lord. But in another sense, they did not fear the Lord. And what's the difference? Is that even though they feared the Lord, they continued to worship other gods. And there is a very real sense where it's easy for us to say we fear the Lord. It's easy for us to provide lip service that God is king. But there are times in our lives where our actions betray that. And this text should be a warning to us. And I love Charles Spurgeon comments on this text. Um, And he says, another person's shipwreck ought to always be a beacon to us. And so in looking at how these people are saying they're fearing the Lord, but in a real way they're not fearing the Lord, we should check our own hearts and our own actions. And this is what he said. What follows, they feared the Lord, is ugly and shows that it was a sham conversion. It involved only an outward change. It was caused entirely by terror. 
The teeth and fangs and fiery eyes of lions and the thunder of their roars converted them. We should always be somewhat unsure of our own conversion if we can trace it solely to the motives of terror. Their conversion was also marred by ignorance. Rather than wanting to know God, they wanted to know how they were to behave. And what's interesting is we saw that in verse 28, I think, where the priest didn't come and tell them about God. The priest came and told them how they should fear God. The priest merely modified their behavior and how uh, worried we should be that our following of Jesus is only behavior modification and not heartfelt worship of the king who is Lord over all things. Their thought, Spurgeon continues, was altogether of externals. In fact, according to verse 34, none of them feared the Lord. And so I love this last sentence. I tweeted this out this morning. He says, to try and keep religion and yet to keep our sins is not to fear God, but to insult him. And so what a wonderful reminder in our own heart. Like if you want to gut check, is this you? Then we look at our obedience to God. Are we, does our worship match up with obedience that flows from it? Not because obedience saves us, but because obedience is the sign of a saved heart. Obedience is a sign of someone who fears the Lord and wants to honor him because we've learned to trust him and not the foreign kings of the world. And so I find that to be something that's really convicting for me. Um, do I have lip service Christianity? Do I say I fear the Lord on Twitter or from the pulpit or um, at family worship, but in my heart and in my private time, am I not fearing him by not obeying him? Am I trying to follow other gods to kind of hedge my bets in that area? So we should look at our actions. And then we also, so we see the danger of lip service, but we also see the danger of living life in a divided kingdom. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, for those of us who were with us yesterday at church, that Jesus is the one true Lord. He is the risen, ruling, reigning king whom death could not kill. Um, and yet, there is still a sense where this is the devil's world. And all throughout the pages of scripture, until we get to, the, to Revelation, and God finally throws Satan and his minions into chains forever, we live in a divided kingdom. And the divided kingdom is not simply Israel and Judah, or Judah and Assyria. The divided kingdom is the spiritual forces um, of God and of the devil who wish to rend our hearts from what is true. And actually what was interesting is when we read Rabshakeh, speaking to the people of Israel, what we hear is I hear echoes of Eden, right? Remember when Satan came and tried to convince Eve that following God was not for their good, but following him, like eating the fruit was what was given them best. To disobey God was going to be good for Adam and Eve. And here in Rabshakeh's thing, he's saying to disobey Hezekiah is going to be good for you. And I just want to read this section here and we could hear this. Then Rabshakeh stood, this is at verse 28 of chapter 18, and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. He's intentionally trying to intimidate them. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you of his own, or then each one of you will eat of his own vine and of his own fig tree, and each of you will drink water from his own cistern. See this offer of different trees. It's forever what we're going to have to put up with here on this world. 
until I come and take you away to a land like your own. It's just as good as the land you have here. In fact, maybe even better. A land of grain, of wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. See, again, the problem that we face as God's people is not that the lies of the enemy are promising bad things. They're promising God's things, but they're promising them in ways that only God can provide, right? This is all language that was used to the promised land, things that we should desire. And yet the truth is, is that uh, Sennacherib and Assyria cannot provide what only God can. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the other nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? In other words, their gods didn't help them. Where are the gods of Sepapharim and Hena and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of their land have delivered their lands out of my hands, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hands? And so here we see this divided tension in our hearts. We encounter daily Sennacheribs, don't we? Who say, don't listen to the king. Don't listen to your king. I can provide you something better. Why would you risk being conquered by the world when instead you could enjoy the world? This is really similar to what we looked at yesterday in 1 Peter uh, 4, right? The world wants us to join in what they have, and they are surprised when we don't. And Our hearts need to hear, and what we'll see in in chapters 19 and 20, is that Hezekiah does turn to the Lord. Hezekiah is the good king who doubles down on his trust in God, despite his fearfulness, which we'll look at in just one second in closing. And we turn to Jesus, who has risen up from the grave and shown us that nothing can defeat this king. That there is nothing that Jesus' resurrection has not promised that he could provide to his people, even when an army shows up at the gates and speaks in our language and calls to us with the desires of our heart and shows us the way in which those who have gone before us have died just as well. We trust in our king. We learn to live life in a divided kingdom by learning to see the beauty and trustworthiness of the king who has gone before us, a king greater than Hezekiah, a king greater than David, a king greater than death himself, and that is the king, Jesus Christ. And so we look at our own hearts and we know the only way we can make it through this world is having the clear hope of the king so that we don't fall into the temptation of Eden or the temptation of Sennacherib, but instead we trust in the faithful king. And this is where we begin to look out. And so I wrestled with this as I was looking at this this morning for something applicable I think the question is simply, where's our hope? Because what's interesting here is Hezekiah starts this chapter in chapter 18 by going and stripping God's temple of what's valuable to provide it as a tribute to Assyria. And at the end, it doesn't help him. And so there's two realities in there. Is we will be prone at times, I often say, say this, all worship, or all sin, excuse me, is stolen worship. It's taking what belongs to God and giving it to someone who's not. And that's what Hezekiah is doing. He's thinking that if he could take this gold, which is meant to adorn, God doesn't need the gold. It's meant to show the value of God. If he takes that and he gives that to the king of Assyria, then he'll be saved. And we often think that if we, when presented with the divided kingdom of this world, if we can just take bits and pieces of our worship of God and kind of hack it off and bring it over here, we will appease whatever stands against us. But the truth is, one, we are just stealing what is rightfully due to God. And that is sinful. As an issue of justice, it does not belong to anyone else. It is stolen worship. But then secondly, 
just as we see with Assyria, we can go through the great lengths of stealing from God and at the end it won't actually save us because nothing will appease the forces that stand against us. The world and the devil does not care how much you offer them. You will always be found wanting. You will never be able to provide enough to get salvation by the world's standards. But Christ our King has provided ultimate standing before God. We do not need to rob from what Christ has given to pay those who are not Jesus. We don't need to pay off foreign kings because we stand robed in the riches of the King of Kings. And so we need to learn to check our hopes. Are there places in our world where we're robbing from God, hoping to pay off the world, only to find that the world doesn't care what we give them? And so will we, as we look, uh, in fact, I don't think we could rightly apply this until we read chapters 19 and 20 tomorrow. Um, Will we trust that our king is sufficient? That if we listen to his words, we will suffer no loss, but instead we will get all the things the world promised even though at times it might seem difficult, even though at times it might seem that the army that's standing outside the gates is bigger and stronger and is speaking our language in a way that intimidates us, but we know that nothing can intimidate us when we are hidden inside of the king who has defeated all things, and that is Jesus Christ. And so may we together begin to look and see the wonder of this God, the God who brought us out of Egypt, and may we not, like Israel did, disobey to our own destruction, And may we, like we see Judah, um, will tomorrow, may we endure by the word of the king because Christ has proven everything in our place. We are members of a good king and no one can snatch us out of his hand. So let's pray today that we learn to discern our own hopes and find places where we're seeking to rob God of what is his to pay people who are not. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you help us understand our hopes. You help us understand... um, places where we have heard the promised truth of Jesus, where we have seen the new exodus, where we have been promised the new promised land, and yet we say we fear God, but we do other things. We worship other gods. We live in other ways. But Lord, we ask that you rend our hearts true because of the faithful king who has gone before us. We ask that you provide us hope that it is that Jesus' resurrection proves that obeying him is always what's good for his people. Lord, I pray that for some of us, Lord, you, you uh, distort the language of the Sennacheribs that are speaking against our soul. That it would be a common grace that temptation is no longer as loud as it once was so that we might have the ability to hear the words of the King, to trust in the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown in history that you preserve a remnant. A remnant who rests not in their strength, not in their acceptance in this world, but who rests in the promise of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good Monday. We'll catch you later. If you missed this, feel free to check it out on the podcast on iTunes or Google, and I hope you have a good day.